0: How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the Internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create The Wrap Dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to continue my conversation with Rick Atkinson, the best-selling and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Liberation Trilogy and The In-Progress Revolution Trilogy. Today, we will discuss the remaining volume of The Liberation Trilogy, A Narrative History of World War II, Europe from 1942 to 1945. Rick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm glad to be with you. So in hindsight, do you think the U.S. could have launched an invasion of Western Europe before
1: 1944? I don't. It'll be one of those counterfactuals that the historians will be arguing about generations from now. There was a belief in the uh, higher echelons of American uh, military leadership that it possibly could have been done in 1943. There would have been advantages to that primarily in uh, relieving French of uh, the burden of the Nazi boot on their necks. But I think when you look at the invasion that occurs on June 6, 1944, and you see how difficult that was, what a near-run thing it actually was, I think that to believe that it could have been done a year earlier uh, without the extraordinary resources that had been marshaled in that intervening year between uh, summer of 1943 and summer of 1944, that uh, it, it could not have been done. And moreover, had it failed, Had the uh, Americans and British and Canadians uh, been thrown back into the sea at Normandy, uh, then it was probably going to be at least another year, maybe longer, before the invasion could be mounted again. You would have lost the opportunity of surprise, and it was a surprise at Normandy – The Germans uh, suspected that the invasion was more likely to come at the Pas-de-Calais, which is the closest point on the French coast to Britain. And you probably would have had a different commander. If Eisenhower had been the uh, commander when the invasion occurred earlier and it had failed, he probably would not have survived that. And so you'd have somebody else uh, commanding it. So I think that as it turned out, uh, the decisions that were made, the timing that was made was appropriate.
0: So uh, there was a wide discussion about who was going to lead the invasion of Western Europe. And it was widely thought at that time, as I understand it, that George Marshall would lead the invasion. Why did George Marshall, who was close to Roosevelt, not get that assignment? And was Marshall very disappointed
1: about not getting the assignment? Yeah, George C. Marshall, not a West Pointer, incidentally, a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute. Marshall had become the chief of staff of the army on all days, September 1st, 1939, which was the day that Germany invaded Poland, sheer coincidence. And as chief of staff, he is the long pole in the tent for the United States Army and among the combined chiefs, which includes the Navy and and the Army Air Force. At that point, uh, the Air Force was part of the army. He is first among equals among uh, American military men. He thought By the time we were getting close to the invasion of Western Europe, that he was going to be the commander in chief, that he and Eisenhower would essentially swap jobs That Eisenhower, having commanded for North Africa and having commanded for Sicily and for the initial invasion of southern Italy, that Eisenhower would then come back to Washington. Frankly, the decision is made by Roosevelt, and the decision is made by Roosevelt because he says, quite honestly, I can't bear to think of not having you, George Marshall, uh, in Washington. I trust you so much. I rely on you so much. Your importance to the allied effort is so important. You're so experienced at this point. I need you here. And so the decision is made. Marshall uh, is the sort of man who would never betray his disappointment. We know that uh, he was privately disappointed. He never voiced any criticism of the president. He never said, gosh, that job should have been mine. He salutes and carries on because that's the kind of uh, soldier he was. So how long
0: did the planning take for the invasion? How many soldiers and ships and airplanes were involved? And was Eisenhower really in charge of the entire planning? Everything uh, in the end was his final decision, or did he have to get things approved by Churchill and, and Roosevelt?
1: Well, the planning had actually begun early in the American involvement in war. There's thinking about, okay, if we're going to use Britain as a big aircraft carrier, we're going to cross the English Channel into France or, or the Low Countries. Uh, how would we do this? So there's, they've been thinking about it, and planners have been working on it, and working on the 10,000 small details. It accelerates in earnest in 1943. Eisenhower uh, goes back from Italy to take over the planning, He is the decision maker, but he does have bosses. The bosses include the combined chiefs of staff. Those are the American and British uh, senior commanders of all the services. And of course, the two political leaders, Roosevelt and Churchill. So there's a a fair amount of vetting that goes on. But Eisenhower is the one who is making the decision. He's going to make the decision uh, of, of whether to launch the invasion on June 5th which is when it was uh, originally planned. But bad weather precludes that. He makes the decision to postpone it. And he makes, in some ways, an even harder decision to do it on June 6th when the weather is still pretty crummy. But he, he realizes that it's kind of now or never, that the window is a complex uh, sequence of events that need to happen with the moon being right, and the tides being right, and the sea state being right. He's going to make that decision. He is the, the ultimate decision maker when it comes to operational decisions in Normandy. How did the Allies disguise what they were planning to do and where they were planning to do it? Well, there was a very elaborate deception plan. It's largely formulated by the British, who have a a genius for deception, as it turns out. There was a hope that you could confuse the, the Germans about where you were coming and when you were coming there was no question if you were coming. Everyone recognized that there had to be an invasion of Western Europe uh, at some point, somewhere. So this deception plan was called Fortitude, uh, included, for example, uh, creating a notional, a fictitious army group in Scotland. It included placing fake tanks and landing craft Along uh, the British coastline, so that if the Germans had reconnaissance flights, they would look down and they would see all these uh, tanks and planes and landing craft, which were actually just balloons or cutouts. All of it trying to convince the Germans that the invasion is coming later than it is, later than early June, and that it's coming in a different place, particularly uh, the Pas-de-Calais, that nearest point on the French coast from the coast of Britain. And it was entirely successful. The Germans uh, never did figure out when the invasion was coming. Rommel, who was the senior German commander along the uh, Atlantic coast, had actually left his headquarters in Normandy to go back for his wife's birthday in Germany. So unwitting was he about when the invasion was coming. He had to hurry back to his headquarters when he got word that uh, something serious was happening on the beaches of Normandy. So it's one of the great successes, not only of the campaign in World War II, it's one of the the great uh, deception plans in warfare. So is
0: it true that Hitler was asleep And no one wanted to wake him up to tell him that you need to reposition troops to Normandy from wherever else they
1: were. Hitler was asleep. Uh, He was in Berchtesgaden, his uh, retreat in Bavaria at the time. There was reluctance to wake him up initially because it wasn't certain whether this was a a feint, whether the reports were wrong, whether uh, there actually was an invasion there. The conflict that was occurring in the uh, German higher ranks, and it ultimately got to Hitler, was over whether to take your reserves, and these are basically armored divisions, panzer uh, divisions, and deploy them close to where you think the Allied landings are going to come or to hold them back closer to Paris so that once you realize where the invasion is coming, then you can deploy those divisions. There was a real uh, split uh, opinion in the German high ranks about whether to do this. Hitler ultimately makes the decision he's going to cut the baby in half. He's going to take some of those divisions and he's going to deploy them uh, close to the beaches. He's going to take others and he's going to keep them back in reserve away from the beaches. The issue for the Germans in particular is allied air superiority. They know that the German Luftwaffe or the German Air Force is no match for what the Americans and British and other allies are going to be able to deploy. And trying to move those divisions around the Norman landscape uh, when there are thousands of Allied airplanes uh, waiting to uh, attack those uh, armored units is a real conundrum for the Germans. They never quite get it right.
0: So was Eisenhower prepared for a uh, defeat? In other words, suppose the invasion had not worked out, and I thought that Early on in the invasion, it didn't look so wonderful. But was Eisenhower prepared for a defeat? And did it look at the beginning like maybe it wasn't going to be successful?
1: No, Eisenhower, this is a tribute to his character, I think. Eisenhower was a man who accepted responsibility for the most part. He didn't try to shirk it. He didn't try to slough it off on others. The night before the invasion uh, on June 6, 1944, uh, he wrote a note and he, he folded it into his wallet. And he was going to release it the next day. The gist of that note was, our invasion in Normandy has failed. I am responsible for this. Uh, if any blame is to fall, it should fall on me. Now, he did not have to release that because it was a successful invasion. It was pretty dicey for the first few hours, particularly there were five invasion beaches. The Americans had two of them on Utah and Omaha Beach, and the British and the Canadians had the other three. Omaha Beach, for the Americans, was bloody and nasty. and For about four or five hours, it was not clear whether that particular set of landings was going to be successful or whether they were going to be pushed back into the sea. But by noon on June 6, 1944, Eisenhower, who at that point is still in Britain, realizes he's told that, okay, we're ashore. Now, we got a long way to go and they're going to be stuck in Normandy, uh, not that far from the beaches till late in August, but for the most part, uh, it's realized before sunset on June 6th that the invasion uh, has been successful. But how many uh,
0: soldiers were transported from England to uh, Normandy, the the five beaches, and how many of them actually survived? In other words, if you were one of the people getting out of one of those boats, what was the chance of surviving? One in
1: three, one in four? No, your chances of surviving are, are much better, although if you're on Omaha Beach at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning on June 6th, you probably have some doubts about that. Uh, the American boats are called Higgins boats. They've got a ramp that drops down. And if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, that first 20 minutes or so of the Spielberg uh, movie brilliantly captures the intensity and the horror of, of that landing at Omaha Beach. The invasion force on June 6th is about 150,000. Your odds of of being uh, wounded or killed, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of one in 30, one in 40, something like that. So the odds are are pretty good. But if you're at the point of the spear, if you're landing on Omaha Beach, where the the casualties for the 1st Infantry Division and the 29th Infantry Division, the two American units spearheading uh, those landings, it's very bloody. And for the rest of the campaign in Normandy, it's going to be bloody because once you move inland off of the beaches, you're fighting in a terrain known as bocage. It's uh, heavily forested. It's very dense. It makes for good defensive positions for the Germans. And trying to fight our way through the bocage is difficult and bloody. It is step by step, and it's going to take uh, weeks and weeks. So how did the Allies deal with the task of recovering and burying
0: bodies On How many Americans are now buried in Normandy?
1: Well, there are graves registration units that are deployed with all combat units uh, then and now. Their job uh, began uh, on June 6th, recovering bodies for the Americans on uh, Omaha and Utah beaches. They were buried in uh, temporary cemeteries at that time. The British and the Canadians are doing the same thing. Ultimately, the the dead are going to be consolidated. This is after the war. For the Americans, there's that extraordinary cemetery on the bluff above Omaha Beach. I think there are about 10,000 Americans buried there now, not just from uh, Normandy, although primarily from Normandy, but others from the campaign across France are buried there too. And those bodies were taken from temporary provisional cemeteries that existed all over France and, and ultimately uh, all over Western Europe. And they're consolidated in those extraordinary American battle monuments, Commission cemeteries around the world.
0: So after the invasion, uh, the Americans and the, uh, and the allied troops have to move forward. And they move forward towards Berlin, but it wasn't that easy to get there. They engage in what became known as the Battle of the Bulge. What is the Battle of the Bulge? Did more people die in the Battle of the
1: Bulge than died in the Normandy invasion? Yes. Well, once we, we the Western allies, managed to get out of uh, Normandy, then the terrain is good. It favors mobile mechanized warfare, tanks and trucks, of which we've got many, many. And the, there is a race across France. Paris is liberated in late August of 1944. The Germans are reeling, they're falling back as fast as their legs can carry them, back to essentially the frontier of of Germany. There is a stout defensive wall. It it includes machine gun emplacements and barbed wire and all the other defensive paraphernalia that uh, Hitler can mass. And it runs essentially from the northern coast of Germany all the way down to the Swiss border. So when the Allies, the Americans, the British, the Canadians, and, and others at this point reach this point, and we're now talking about mid-December 1944, it's a belief through the uh, ranks that the war is about over, that the Germans are reeling, they're all but uh, defeated, and that they don't have the stamina or the capacity to launch a substantial counteroffensive. That is completely wrong. And on December 16th, 1944, the counteroffensive in the Ardennes, which is in uh, Belgium and Luxembourg, very hilly, very thickly forested terrain, is launched. It's it's a brainstorm of Hitler's. Uh, His generals don't want to do it. They don't think it can be successful. Hitler wants to launch a counteroffensive that drives the Allies back and can go all the way to Antwerp, where the main Allied port is now. And that is going to be the biggest battle for the Americans in World War II. It's gonna last about six weeks. It's gonna be extremely bloody, but it is going to be essentially the, the last substantial gasp. It's the last capability that the Germans are gonna have uh, to uh, thwart the invasion of the fatherland. Uh, from that point on, uh, the Germans are, are are fighting ferociously and they're gonna fight ferociously until May of 1945 but they're running out of fuel, they're running out of airplanes, they're running out of everything. And the Battle of the Bulge, as we call it, and it's called that because the German counteroffensive knocked the uh, American forces back 80 miles and caused a bulge in the line. It was the greatest loss of yardage for the United States Army in World War II. But the Battle of the Bulge is going to sap German strength, as Hitler had been warned by his generals, to the point where their cause is largely hopeless.
0: So when Eisenhower gets to the mainland of Europe and he ultimately sees the concentration camps, uh, is he horrified at what he saw? And how did he want to make certain that everybody knew that these concentration camps weren't just concentrating people together, but they were killing people?
1: You know, there uh, was information available, uh, partly by uh, courageous Jewish organizations, partly by the fact that the the Russians had liberated camps in the East. There was a a vague knowledge that uh, there was something horrible happening in these camps, that they were, in fact, extermination camps in some uh, cases. But it's not until the main camps begin to be liberated in April of 1945 with uh, cameras, uh, with news organizations there to record this, to show the horror of it, to show the extent of it. To the point where newsreels are shown in the United States and in Britain before movies, in movie theaters, where you see the the, the images we're all familiar with now with stacks and stacks of bodies and all of the horrible, depraved things that happened there. It's not until then that uh, the world really understands fully what has happened. Eisenhower is as horrified as anybody when he first sees the camps. He uh, goes with uh, Patton and and Bradley in April 1945 to Ordruf. He orders that uh, German civilians be marched through these camps to see what happened. Because, of course, the German civilians are protesting that they know nothing about this. uh, And this is something that will be repeated elsewhere. He is determined that there will be no denying this, that there will be accountability for this that these are war crimes, that they are, as come to be defined, crimes against humanity, and it becomes a cause for him and the the rest of the Allied high command.
0: So in your mind, is there any doubt that Hitler committed suicide and he died in his bunker under Berlin? There were always rumors that he escaped or the Russians took his body or took him back
1: to Russia. Uh, Any views on that? Uh, Yeah, I have views on it. Uh, He killed himself and his his wife, he'd he'd married her that day. Eva Braun uh, killed herself in that bunker complex uh, in the center of Berlin, April 30th, uh, 1945. The Russians were all around at that point. Uh, There was no escape. And the Russians uh, found the charred bodies, actually, after he shot himself and Eva had taken cyanide aides carried the bodies up the flights of stairs to the surface where there were artillery shells falling around. And um, it was a moonscape already at that point in Berlin. And uh, as he had directed, the, the bodies were covered with petrol uh, and they were burned. The Russians found those remains and took them back to Moscow. They also found Hitler's dentist and his dental record. And they were able to confirm that the jawbones that they found were, in fact, uh, Hitler's, that the dental records matched the teeth that were found. There's no doubt that he killed himself. And there's no doubt that he and Eva Braun's bodies were burned. Final
0: question, Rick. In hindsight, which is always 2020, is there something that Hitler could have done or the German military forces could have done to win the war in Europe or something that the Americans and the Allies could have done? That would have made it more likely that they would lose the war.
1: Well, you know, Hitler made several strategic mistakes. Invading the Soviet Union in June of 1941 was one of them. Obviously, the Germans had a lot of success initially, but eventually they're going to find that invading a country that spans 11 time zones, that has essentially a bottomless supply of, of manpower, and is being helped a lot by the Americans who are providing the uh, Soviets with trucks and airplanes and so on. Because five months later, he's going to end up fighting the Americans also. So strategically, this is not a winning proposition that Hitler has chosen. If he had not invaded the Soviet Union, would there have been some sort of modus vivendi in which Hitler is permitted to keep occupied Western Europe? Probably not. It's hard to imagine that there would be a German-speaking confederation of nations to this day under the Nazis. The Americans and our, our allies uh, certainly could have protracted the war by making mistakes. If the invasion of Normandy had gone awry, it would have taken a lot longer to liberate Western Europe. It's entirely possible to imagine that if the invasion had failed in 19. 19- 44 that the war in Europe would not have ended until 1947, 1948. The configuration of Europe would have been different because the Russians were coming from the east at that point. Uh, they probably would have taken all of Germany. So I have difficulty imagining the war turning out a lot differently than it actually did. Hitler was overmatched not only in fighting armies that were better equipped than his, but in fighting uh, armies that were unified with good strategic leadership, with capable battlefield leadership, and with a determination that this tyranny, this horror of the Third Reich would not stand.
0: Rick, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I highly recommend all of your books. I've read them all. I highly recommend it to anybody that's listening. Um, If they really want to understand the most uh, important event of the 20th century, I think it's understanding World War II. Thank you very much for being in conversation with us. David, thank you so
1: much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.
0: On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share
1: your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.